Hey guys, how's it going? Cody here. Just want to hop on and just uh, go over something super, super quick. I just wanted to sincerely apologize. There was a few times where I had some internet issues and I did not fully hear what our guest said. And I down the road, I made some mistakes and asked some questions that literally did not make sense because I did not have key information when asking them. So I do want to apologize ahead of time. Graham does correct me and he was happy to do so. And it was hilarious. So enjoy. But just wanted to hop on and let you guys know that I'm not a complete idiot, that it was just an honest mistake. But enjoy the episode. Here you go. Hey, welcome back to the Blue Collar Off-Road Podcast, episode 135. I'm Graham. I'm here with Luke, Richie, and Cody. And today we've got a little bit of a different guest on. He's it's off roading, but not in the normal sense. It, I guess it's kind of in the vein with uh, um, radial dynamics. He wasn't really a he doesn't have a crawler, so to speak. Um, you've got Brian from River City Rally, who is a a friend of Luke's. Um, I met him when I was down in Tennessee. He's a super stand up guy. He's building some really cool shit, and it's totally different than. It's a completely different world from from rock crawling and uh, you know wheeling as as most of us know it. It's a just different kind of off road. So this will be a little bit of a different episode. Um, Luke, I don't know if you have any like starter kickoffs here. Oh yeah, uh, I like, do. Go ahead. Go so, ahead. So um, Brian, like before we get into how you got into this, what exactly is gravel rallying in the area like that we're in you know kind of give everyone an idea set the stage if you will yeah so um rally like it's at its core it's a it's a race um but rather than go to a track and do laps around the same track all day uh we close down a section of the road or several sections of road and one at a time each car goes runs down it as fast as they can um just the nature of what we're doing. The roads tend to be usually tight roads. It can be any sort of surface, um, you know, pavement, snow, gravel, dirt, mud, whatever. Um, traditionally, it's a lot of gravel and dirt roads. There are some pavement rallies. There's getting to be a few here in the U.S. They get pretty sketchy because the, you go real fast on pavement and, you know, there's trees and stuff around you and not walls like a traditional racetrack so um yeah that's basically it it's uh it's a race down a unprepared like basically shut down road and it's an excuse for me to go out and pretend i'm you know the duke's a hazard for a weekend i absolutely love that yeah it's it was cool i've seen some of the videos and whatnot and i've seen you building the car so now that we kind of explained what rallying is to kind of set the pretext for it how did you end up in that little niche of off-roading we had a guy on that was into the like uh, pikes peak and mount washington hill killing it's, it's different and cool so how did you get into that um yeah so i mean going back to when i was a kid like i was introduced to motorsports by my dad who was a nascar fan but he wasn't really like involved in it at all he was just a fan so like you know i had the little toy cars and we go to the races and stuff and i didn't really have like much of an entry point in the motorsports so i went to college because i was like maybe i can build cars or something um get out of college get a job and i just kind of went to 
went with anybody that I knew that was going to a racetrack or going to a race somewhere. And, um, you know, just to see, see what's up, like figure out how I can get into this, figure out what I want to do. And at the time I, you know, the place I was working, my friend, Michael Hooper was another engineer there. And he was like, yeah, I got a rally car. You want to help me come like work on it? I was like, sure, whatever. Um, went to check it out and it was, you know, not really knowing what to expect and helped him put the car together. You know, first thing I, I remember seeing the car for the first time and it had like actual rally tires and I was like, whoa, like this is, I didn't even know they did this in the US. Like this is kind of serious and he's, he's, you know, not screwing around. And um, so went with him to a race just as crew and had a great time. Well, kind of a great time. It's kind of a longer <laughs> story, but um, went to a couple of races, started having some success and just kind of like fell into that because I learned real quick that like, I'm going to gain a lot of experience here as far as like how to prep a car for a race, how to, you know, prep a car in general, how to fix a car after they, you know, tear a corner off of it because they hit a big rock or whatever. Um, and I was like, you know, no matter where I end up in motorsports, this is going to like, this is going to help me get there. And it's going to give me a lot of experience without having to like spend my own money on a car till I can figure out what I want to do. Uh, did that, did some different stuff for a while, started in karting to like learn the driver skill stuff. And I won the track championship I was racing at and I was kind of at a crossroads at that point. I was like, okay, you know, do I want to go to like a higher level of karting or try to get into some different kind of motorsport or whatever? And at that point I was three or four years into doing this crew thing. And I was like, you know, this is a lot of fun. There's not a lot of places, you know, kind of no matter what you look at in motorsports, it's all a money pit. Like there's nowhere, even when they make money, they're spending more than they make anyway. And like my friends are doing this now because I've made so many friends doing rally. And I was like, I, I think this is what I want to do. I want I want to go racing with my friends and rallies at, uh, it's kind of unique space these days that like, you know, we're not, we're not racing kit cars of some sort. We're not super limited by a rule book. Like we can, it's almost frustrating that like the class we race in um, is open two wheel drive. It's the rule book is basically safety stuff and like car must be two wheel drive and minimum weight of like something crazy low. So you just build the best car you can with the money you have and try to go out and, you know, run what you're brung and hope you're brung enough. Right. I yeah. kind of appreciate that aspect though, because I really like motorsports with creative freedom in there. When mm -hmm. you are constrained by a set of rules past safety, um, I don't particularly like watching it. Um, it's a double-edged sword, I think, but you yeah. do get some pretty wacky cars. I don't think the winning car is necessarily the coolest car in most of those cases. Oh, right? for sure. So kind of what I meant by frustrating is like, I like the creative side too, you know, trying to find like holes in the rule book and like ways around stuff. But like when the rule book is so wide open, there's not really holes. It's yep. just, it's an exercise in like speed per dollar. So figure out how to make the best use of the dollars you have. Mm -hmm. And Turn it into as much speed as you can. Yep. 
And it's kind of interesting because I've seen the car in person, the extent that you guys go to to uh, maximize the amount of horsepower per pound, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's awesome and cool as shit to see because for me, one of the cool things was on that car, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's uh, like shim stock over your wind or over the rear view mirror mounts on the doors uh basically yeah it's aluminum so i don't think people would use, it's it's like flashing or something um mm-hmm. yeah what you're referring to is so oh, the side le- mirror stuff yeah side mirror i'm sorry <laughs> yeah so we the lexus has like giant plastic side mirrors on the car they're kind of heavy but they're mostly goofy looking and and draggy so we take them off and i got some like cheapo small mirrors to stick on there but then you're left with a big gaping hole in the door and hooper on all his cars so far has basically just covered it with a sticker and inevitably (laughs) someone's kid comes along and goes "Ooh, that's neat and sticks their finger right through it (laughs) so you know not wanting to spend the time or money to do actual body work i got this like aluminum flashing material we had around is slightly thicker than aluminum foil and just cut some pieces out and rivet it on try to make it look kind of nice you know cover it up keep it light keep the dust out of the car all that stuff and keep kids fingers from poking through it uh yeah the, I, when you told me that when i was when i was down and we were talking was i thought that was pretty funny the flashing's yeah. pretty light too though i mean a kid could probably stick their finger through it but it doesn't look as cool as a sticker so for sure so I think someone's kid could definitely stick their finger through it, but they're not going to, they're going to have to put some effort into it. They're not going to okay. be like, what does this do? And then stick it <laughs> all the way through. Yeah. Yeah. The, the carding thing is interesting. That's like, I've, it's, it's something that's always tempted me, but I've just never, uh, I've never done it. That's uh, like, what kind of carts were you running? Just out of curiosity. Yeah, so carding thing is awesome. Um, the only real drawback to it is like you can't, you, you're limited by like your access to carding tracks, right? Like if you live yeah. somewhere where the closest track is 900 miles away or whatever. Um, but yeah, so carding, um, the carts I race, the class, they called it TAG, which is, it stands for touch and go, which means. The carts have a starter. The point is, it's a 125 two-stroke single-speed go-kart. Um, so it's like 30 horsepower, mm-hmm. and it weighs 375 pounds with me in it. Um, wow. Oh, yeah. yeah. They're quick. They're fucking quick. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, I like to say it's like, it's mind-bendingly quick. Like, when you put people in it, I mean, I remember when I first drove it, you know, I wasn't close to the speed the cart can go and my head was just spinning when i got out because i was like i i had no idea you could drive this deep into a corner it feels like it's trying to take your head you know a different direction from the rest of your body and it's it's got so much more like people are driving away from me so um yeah that those things they're super awesome like they're uh so the tracker aren't they is that the other um, term for it? No, not exactly. So a shifter cart, the shifter cart classes that race are basically the same chassis, 
similar motor, um, also a 125 two-stroke, but it has a six-speed gearbox. Um, I initially was like, I should start in a shifter cart. I'm, I kind of know what I'm doing. I've done iRacing and whatever. And someone advised me like, no, it's probably not a good idea. You shouldn't do that. And I am very glad I took their advice because the <laughs> single-speed carts at 125 will absolutely you know, they'll kick most people's ass at first you can you can work your way up to it you can get there most people can get pretty quick on them um so after i won the track championship at atlanta motorsports park in the single speed class i did step up to a shifter um at i think i ran it for a year and a half or so but there just weren't many people running them at the time so i was like okay i want to race against people again i ended up selling it but yeah, the the single speed carts they blow your mind at first. You kind of catch up to them, like mentally, like you catch up to them, and it's not yeah. like super taxing to like you know get through a race and whatever. Um, still fun, like it's still challenging, it's still pushing you. But the shifter cart, the shifter cart, it's, I mean, I, it it's absolutely like mind-blowing because they're you know where the single speed cart because it's a single speed you'll have certain corners that you're not going as fast as a cart can go or you get to the long straightaways and you kind of get a chance to like take a breath the shifter you're doing so much more because you're banging through the gears and you're always on power i don't know if you're familiar with like two-stroke dirt bikes or whatever like Mm -hmm. when they're off their power band like they're off and when they're on it's like it's like turbo lag with a giant turbo it's it just completely transforms the thing so you know with the shifter you're always on the power and it's every corner is beating on you you're you know the straightaways seem so much shorter because you're always on the power going down them they it it's violence you know the braking the shifting the turning i mean i feel like i get beat up after i do that thing um and it's so much fun uh it's crazy it's yeah it it pushes your pushes you mentally pushes you physically like if you can if you can get in a tag cart and get a hold of it much less a shifter like shifters another level but if you can get either one of them and like get a hold of it and and kind of learn what you're doing you can get in pretty much anything else and it seems relatively easy just because you're not you know it it's not the same level of violence the things aren't coming at you as quick it's mm-hmm. it's an experience for sure i highly recommend it dude i've always i've always 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 wanted to try the shifter card stuff um especially coming from like dirt bikes and riding all different sorts of things like hearing that there's carts out there that are running 125s is just so sick to me mm-hmm. oh yeah love it um so is that that's generally the usual step that people go for racing right is they start in the carts at a younger age if not just like that is where like most people start or am i wrong with that idea yeah kind of yes and no um generally you know the people you see make it to professional racing do start in carts at a young age and generally graduate up the ladder pretty quickly um you know, not to devolve into economics of motorsport discussion, but they generally move up the ladder to a certain point while they still have 
you know, parents funding, getting them up that ladder. And then if you can get to the point you need to get to start making money um, before that funding runs out, then you get to be a professional race car driver. But, uh, you know, beyond that, for, for those of us who don't have that access point, um, a lot of people nowadays start, you know, if they start when they're adults, they start doing autocross, they start doing, you know, track days at road courses and whatever. Um, then a lot of people get into like uh, 24 hours of lemons or champ car and stuff like that. That's a pretty common, like, you know, not that that's a path to being, you know, the next Richard Petty or whatever, but that's the path a lot of people take when they start kind of like I did, where you start as an adult and get your introduction into motorsports. Um, yeah. yeah, I was at an autocross one time and there was, there was a, there was a car that was a guy and his kid who was like 15 at the time were alternating runs in it. And I don't know if you've ever been to a racetrack. If you ever go to a racetrack and you're around, you can get up close and you see like a professional driver and the way the car like squats and moves and weight transfers and stuff. And then an amateur driver, like you can see clear differences in that. And I saw this 15 year old kid just ripping this thing up. And it, the contrast between like him and his dad was so dramatic. And I was like, what, what the hell is this? Found out he got started in karting. So that's what piqued my interest and kind of got me looking that direction. Um, oh, hell yeah. Yeah. And then going back to, you know, I got out of college. I started going, I, I went to lots of different races, lots of different tracks, different types of karting, different types of like big racing and like, like dollar per experience level. This seemed like the thing that was going to like push me the most and like get me to be the best driver spent you know spending the least amount of money possible because like it's motorsports it's a giant black hole no matter what you do so <laughs> yeah oh that's awesome that is so cool so then how does cardin go turn into rally was there any steps in between and did you just like kind of take an old beater and just start riding and ripping around yeah so when i started carding so it i started um probably my first maybe a year or so after i graduated college i started carting um at that point i had already started crewing for hooper doing the rally car thing um you know three or four years of that i got to like okay what's my next step from carting i had done a little bit of like track day kind of stuff um i had done some autocross stuff just because it was cheap and accessible and whatever um and then having kind of my foot in the door as a crew member for a rally team, I had a certain amount of built-in knowledge, um, you know, built-in knowledge for what it took to prepare a car, you know, what, what the classes are, where the races are, all this stuff. Um, and then, yeah, that was, so at this point, I had helped Hooper build his Lexus, which was the second car that I had known him to have. Um, and there was a friend of his here in town who had an E30 BMW um, that he was looking to sell that was also a rally car. E30 is what Hooper had started in. So it's like, okay, here's 
my entry point. You know, it's I mm-hmm. I know roughly what it's going to take to prepare this car. I know here it is. I've got some knowledge base around me that like can can kind of support me on this, and so that's that's where we started. I feel like an E30 is not a cheap choice, though. What did you end up going with for your first car? Yeah, so E30, um, it's definitely not a cheap choice anymore. So the story behind the E30 is Hooper and three other friends here in Chattanooga. Um, I don't even know how long ago at this point, because it, it was, this was before I got involved. Um, Basically, Hooper had the skill set and the ability to build these cars. The other friends also wanted to do rally, had some, you know, a little more money and not necessarily the skill set or the time to put into building the cars. So they bought and built two E30 rally cars in the early 2010s or so. Um, at that point, E30s were cheap. Like you, you know, they were getting them, they were getting them cheap. They, you know, you could buy a wrecked one for $500 with a good motor in it. Damn, swap for an E30? Car. Yeah. No, that's what I'm telling you. Like, this is before <laughs> they got to be expensive. They were just an Holy old shit. BMW at the time. So, you know, they had two of them they were running. Uh, some of the other friends got a little less serious. That was the car I bought. Um, Hooper and his co-driver got a little more serious ended up selling their E30 in 2015, 16 or so. Um, And then with the other friends kind of not running, that car sat for a couple of years. I was able to get into it relatively cheap um, because it needed some work and whatever. I wouldn't recommend starting with an E30 these days. Especially not these days. Right. They're, you know... It, it's like with anything, the parts just get used up and it goes from like plentiful and cheap to a uh, scarce resource and the prices go up and it gets hard to find stuff and all that good stuff. So we're watching that right now in the rock crawling world where Cherokees used to be the $300 special that you could go pull out of anyone's yard. And now like a clap wagon one's going for 3,500 bucks. Yeah, yep. it is insane. Yeah, it's and it. It comes and goes so fast. Like, you don't... It sneaks up on you. Like, I was watching... Um, so, a friend of mine was watching an old drifting video, something or other, from 2006 or so. And there was, you know, obviously the new, like, sponsored cars and stuff. And there was an 80-something Toyota A86 Corolla. Oh, and yeah. it's, obviously it sticks out. It's like old in that video, right? And we still think of it as old. But like I start, sat there and did the math. I was like, you know, that new 350Z in this video, if you were to buy that now and run it against the new cars, that's the same like age difference as the new cars in this video versus that A86 Corolla. Like, that's insane they, to think about. Yeah. Yeah. So long story short, we're all old as dirt. Go out and do fun <laughs> shit before <laughs> you know it comes and goes. Before you become dirt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. yeah I started really noticing that with the two forties. Like I just got into cars like that, like the Nissan SX two forties and whatnot. 
Uh, mm-hmm. 40SX is part of me. Um, right as they started getting just stupidly, stupidly expensive to where I remember mm-hmm. I went over to a buddy's house and he was like, yeah, I just picked this thing up for like 3,500 bucks. Absolutely rotted. Like the <laughs> interior was destroyed. And I'm like, you paid 3,500 bucks for this thing, dude? I'm like, what's wrong with you? He's like, ah, nah, man, this thing's cheap. I'm like, oh, uh, okay. Yeah. Hey, whatever makes you happy, man. <laughs> like, good for you. Yep. I was just like, what the fuck? I never realized just how much money all that was. It's crazy. Yeah. Uh, I'm familiar with that discussion, too. A friend of mine, same friend from the drifting video. I I didn't know shit about 240s. He started helping me on the rally cart. He was like, man, I want a 240. I looked him up online. I was like, what the fuck? Why are they so expensive? (laughs) (laughs) It's an old Nissan. What is this? It is crazy. I... I mean, they are cool, but just as just like how with Cherokees, it's just like uh, wheeling tax to Cherokee or with uh, Nissan's is drift tax. It is mm-hmm. absolutely insane how much money all this stuff costs for like mm-hmm. cars that are so old. But they're still I was cool. actually <laughs> just about to ask: Is there a rally tax? Uh, no, there's not really a rally tax because at least not in this part of the world, just because it's so it's such a small community, like. I say that, but I think we might have created a little bit of a rally tax on Lexus parts. But potato, potato, um, not really. We noticed, you know, the drift tax and the, the road racing tax, same as everybody else does, right? Like, you know, E30s, now E36s, I'm sure E46s will be next. Um, anything that kind of crosses over that to road racing or to drifting or whatever, We'll see that same tax happen, same as those guys will. And it kind of kills me. I don't know about in your world, but there wasn't something to come after the Cherokee to pick up the cheap seat, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so, when the sorry. Uh, go ahead. When the Cherokee is gone, I don't know what the next thing to replace it's going to be. So I'm Probably. curious. Oh seven to thirteen JKs. If I had to yep. guess, that's what I was gonna say. I, I'd I'd have to agree with you. Yeah. As much as like, I mean, because nowadays they are a lot cheaper. It'll be than the four door ones. The two door ones are gonna be the ones that start making. You know, we'll, I think they'll go up in price. The four door ones are plentiful and they're kind of ugly. So mm-hmm. I'm gonna I, get a I, lot of flack for saying that, but <laughs> you're not wrong. JKs are bleh. I've actually seen quite a few of the uh, four-door JKs going for less than ten grand. Wow, that's insane! Where like TJs are still going for stupid money. Yeah. So yeah. what's? So, oh, sorry. L- Go ahead. Let me ask you this. I'm I'm going to divert from rally for a second. Get into you guys' world. Um, you know, obviously, the thing we see in cars and aftermarket stuff these days is the cars are getting more like integrated, and it's harder and harder to to tear them apart and make them do things they weren't originally designed to do. Yes. And UTVs have become so prolific over the last decade. Do you guys ever see like a used, you know, UTV from 10 years ago becoming the next like cheap thing you can get in and hack up and build? To Honestly, next- you're probably onto something with that. Um, just because the, as sad as it is to say the age of the drive-by throttle vehicles are dying, right? Like, and the 
ability to get around computers is only going to be more of a problem, especially when you start talking about cutting stuff up. Um, and it's the a problem, th- but it's a not it's not a problem at the same time. Honestly, the drive by wire shit is super nice for the buggy world. I mean, just look at um, Harry Hendrix's buggy, mm-hmm. the transverse thing. Like his pedals electric, his throttles electric. Like every, all that, almost all of his systems are electric. It makes building a buggy way easier because you just take all the stuff, bolt it down <laughs> wherever it fits, and plug it I in. Love the <laughs> like, shifter, especially. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was actually talking with. Um, uh, Anthony Cairns earlier today, and I was joking about that. I said, This is badass buggy, and he's got the VW shifter bolted <laughs> in there. <laughs> uh, but, like, on that note, I do see another trend coming about, and that's going to probably be more with the people that have some experience. Um, we're moving to tube chassis. The yeah. days of building mm-hmm. stuff off of vehicles is coming to an end because it's easier. Oh, it won't buy. end. It's always oh, it been will. easier it's to a, buy a chassis. If well, the environmentalists have anything to say about it, anything with a VIN, you can't do mm-hmm. shit like that. It has to be legal for the road. So, to be fair, us going like tube chassis is not the worst idea, especially if that does go kind of crazy. You say well, us going tube chassis like anybody here has a tube chassis. Come on. <laughs> I, I don't mean that it's going to end like rapidly, but I mean that the people that have like even moderate levels of being in the sport, it's going to eventually hit a point where it's cheaper to build a tube chassis than it is to build a vehicle off. Not of... with the price of tube these days. Not oh, you know what I'm trying to say, days, though. Days. I'm, yeah. yeah, I get what you're saying. Uh, you know, for people who actually, you know, the the equivalent to karting for like motorsports for or I guess you know rally or drifting or whatever the equivalent to to uh, go karting before going to a you know a race car of some kind the equivalent of that in a in an off roading scenario well, I, maybe that is the side by side ATV stuff. Um, mm. Stuff is still too expensive. Yeah, that's. I think that's the problem. Is it's so expensive right now? But if side by side stuff was cheaper, I could see it being a more feasible thing. But it's like yeah. even now, it's still hard. At least in from what I've seen, to find a reasonably priced used side by side. I think on top that, of that too, that's is sort that... of where all the shitty jeeps fit in. I guess is they're cheap yeah. and they do the thing and. You know, it, it can get you seat time, and then you figure out if you actually want to do it or not, right? Well, mm. like the, there was this guy that uh, me and Luke met a while ago. I don't remember who he was, but he bought all of his grandkids samurais to go into the woods with instead of side-by-sides, because it was fucking cheap. <laughs> they're, they're the exact same size. They have the same fucking horsepower, but... <laughs> A third of the cost, if not yep. more. Ah, here's yeah, the difference. Cooler. And a third of the suspension. <laughs> here's, here's the difference, because I I briefly explored building a side-by-side before I bought the E30. The Samurai, you've got to pay for up front. The side-by-side, you walk in there, the Yamaha or Suzuki or no. Can-Am dealer will finance no. you that thing on a payment plan. So you you don't have to pay the whole thing. You that's just pay true. it month by month. And <laughs> Hold on, though. Go now out in the woods. That's crazy talk, because hear, hear this out. At least with the car, when you do this, 
You are not immediately depreciate like depreciating value. You're not <laughs> depreciating an AT or yeah. any sort oh, of you, ATV with. What are you just uh, pussyfooting around on a side by side? Hell no! I'm running it balls to the fucking walls, letting that blow yeah. off of rip, dude. Like just. Does it have a warranty? Uh kind of. Just get the get the drivetrain warranty and call it a day. So the side by side people are wild, man. It's this. Yeah financing your way into it deal like has made it so accessible realistically like i don't expect anybody in this room would be looking at one anytime soon because like you said you're you're gonna know how to fix them you're gonna break them you're gonna do all that stuff it makes more sense to buy something you're not it the the cost of entry is lower um yeah i mean the thing that does scare me though is the level of accessibility yeah it it's sketchy so they sell insurance on them too. And I see, so I joined some of the Facebook groups to, as I was exploring this and I see some people on there with shit like, Hey, I bent the frame jumping a sand dune last weekend. You think the insurance will cover this? Yeah. And I'm like, what? I, I don't understand the question. <laughs> yeah. If, if insurance does cover this sort of things, you've got to be paying so much for it. Yeah. Like, imagine off-road just, insurance. Yeah, that's well. To be fair, though, to be fair, snowmobile insurance is a thing, and in New Hampshire, oh shit, I don't, I don't want to catch myself saying the wrong state. Either New Hampshire, Maine, or Vermont requires you to have insurance on your snowmobile. So, Mm. but then again, how often is a snowmobile really crashing hard enough to use that? I've, I, I've totaled two sleds, so I guess I shouldn't talk too much. (laughs) uh, But I was also young and stupid, so I, uh, never mind. I'm just gonna end that one because I guess it like I agree with you, but also mm-hmm. it would be so astronomically expensive. Yeah. You yeah. know, I think like with the side by side stuff too, it does create a problem in our world because there's a lot of people like when Graham and myself went out to Harlan, Kentucky, uh, what was that, two years ago now? Yep. Um, that place was just packed with side-by-side people out there just being like absolute idiots with 500-foot drops right next to them. You know, and it was that one dude who was like, he, he bellied on that rock, like teetered for a little bit, and then just flopped off the side. I and mean, it wasn't a steep <laughs> drop, but like that's the sort of stuff that you're looking mm-hmm. at. And there's like edges of mountains on a lot of this property. Uh, so, you know, while it was okay for him to flop there, and I'm sure that sort of influenced his decision making in doing what he did. Uh, granted, everybody else who had the side by side was doing that same line and was making it. He just hit it weird, I guess. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, you know, it. You can definitely get yourself into a lot of trouble really quickly in the wrong spot. Right. But the, the, that's like exactly what I wanted to bring up because the, the problem with the being able to finance your way into the sport is you have a lot of people that shouldn't be doing it that are blowing money and getting themselves into really bad situations because they don't know how to get themselves out. That's actually a fair point. I mean, I don't know. I still think the depreciating value thing is just silly, too. Like, spending money on something you're going to absolutely beat the shit out of, that's rough, but it's also kind of cool as fuck. 
you know, but I mean, we can kind of do that too. You can just go get a personal loan and go do the exact same thing. So, yeah. I'm not going to lie. There have been a couple of buggies that I've been like, hmm. Do I sell <laughs> jerky and just like <laughs> eat some of that cost and take a personal loan on that? Because like LS3, TH400, you know, minor tune and some 43 stickies is very appealing. No. Uh, TH400, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're not go, allowed to do on, that. NV4500. Oh. Wrong four. Anyways. Yeah. Um I I do like the manual and that was part of the reason I didn't do that, but I'm just saying like it but it's you could totally do a different and do a manual. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm, yeah. totally, I'm getting sidetracked. You triggered me. <laughs> we we are absolutely <laughs> getting sidetracked and it's still more effort than walking into Can-Am where they have a finance booth and they just hook you up with whatever monthly payment on $35,000 for whatever period of time. Mm-hmm. And you load it on the trailer and go to the park and beat on it. Mm-hmm. Oh, you're getting they'll sell you a trailer too. Mm. Oh, yeah, I'm sure they will. Well, I'm poor, so I have my they own. They sell you the trailer? truck too. Can I just walk in off the street and say, Give me a truck trailer? Some places, and I'm ready to go. <laughs> you know what? Probably <laughs> at the very most, it's go across the road. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Quick, I need a hundred and fifty dollar. Uh, or not hundred fifty thousand uh, dollar. <laughs> the inner poor uh, broke out of me. <laughs> hundred fifty thousand dollar loan for my truck trailer and can M. Yeah. Oh, so you're going base model for everything? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um. So I suppose that you know we've covered that we're base poor. Um. What are you running? Because you're in our age bracket, so we haven't really talked about Probably that. Probably our tax bracket, too. Uh, no, yeah. he's a mechanical engineer. He's got to be in your tax bracket. <laughs> my tax bracket. Mr. I, IT I'm, engineer. I'm a manager, thank you very much. Yeah, if I'm not in you guys' tax bracket, I'm only, like, one off. I'm not, like, you know, <laughs> somewhere in the stratosphere. Um, yeah, so... Uh, the car I got, um, just finished building it, actually. It's a 2006 Lexus IS350. Um, like I said, like I mentioned before, uh, Hooper's second car that I've known him to have was also an IS350. That one, at the time, was the only one um, that had been built for rally anywhere in the world. Uh, kind of for good reason. Um, there was some, There were challenges. There were things we had to figure out mostly the transmission um so we got the car uh we'd been running the e30 we're looking for something to step up to the two-wheel drive open class and um hooper's brother-in-law i believe owns a company called jarco down in the atlanta area that um basically strips and uh prepares and resells used motors to toyota dealerships so like you know if you go in and and with a blown motor in your toyota and they put in a used engine they buy it from jarco or a similar company not straight from the scrapyard because jarco has gone through the motor resealed it fixed anything wrong with it sells it with a warranty um you know it's a it's a one-stop shop so 
they're Toyota guys from way back. Uh, and his brother-in-law suggested like, Hey, look at an IS, see if it's, see if this fits what you're trying to do. Um, and the IS was built as a competitor to the BMW three series, this particular generation being a competitor to the E 93 series. Um, and you know, the size was close enough. It's a little big for what we're doing, but it was rear wheel drive, which is what we wanted. 300 and a bit horsepower. It's where we needed it to be Toyota reliability. Um, and Hooper bought a wrecked one so we could look at it, you know, measure the suspension, see what everything does. And it's, you know, the front suspension is basically a, a downsized and weak Tacoma suspension, um, upper and lower wishbones and a coil over shocks, which, you know, obviously we're off road. So shocks and springs are a huge importance to us. And one of the biggest expenses it's, it's where you can spend money and make good speed. But most things these days run a McPherson strut front suspension, which to get a McPherson strut that performs the way we need it to is significantly expensive. Uh-huh. Uh, so this thing being coilovers, we're able to run Bill Stein uh, off-road like desert shocks with some custom top and bottom mounts for significantly cheaper than the rally suspension that I put on the E30 several years ago. So it, it works great for us. The problem with it is the transmission. They never made a manual transmission IS350. Yes, they, they did. Ma- oh, no, 250. You're right. It was a 250. Yeah. Actually. Yep, sorry. My apologies. Yeah. <laughs> you're, not, you're not entirely wrong, though, because they did do a manual in Japan. Um, which goes back to where we were. The manual transmission from the 250 bolts up to the 350, but then you've got to make the ECU happy that it's not, it doesn't have an automatic transmission to talk to anymore. Yeah. At the time, we did some looking around, and because this motor, you know, it's not a popular swap, like nobody's got an off-the-shelf tune for it or a uh, standalone ECU that you can buy for. You, you can do a MoTeC or something similar. It's expensive, though. So he got to looking around once we did this, and he found a guy in Canada that was a uh he worked at a toyota dealership i believe and had gotten an ecu from japan for his car because he was doing a manual swap something about it like it had some check engine lights on or something he had gotten another one from japan to fix it and so he had the one with the check engine lights and stuff and said hey i'll sell it to you hooper bought it but we didn't have we we ran for three or four years with that car without having a source for another ECU or another way to manual swap the thing. Um, so yeah, like if we'd have gotten in a wreck and broke the ECU or whatever, like that would have just been, we, we would have been in a little bit of trouble, but that's kind of why like nobody's run them. Nobody turns them into track day cars. Nobody does anything like that because the automatic transmission that comes in them isn't very good for performance driving. And, you've got to do some work to figure out how to get a manual transmission in one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't remember at what point this was. I think it was when I started to look at, okay, what's my next car going to be. I looked around and found a guy in Russia 
who was like, yeah, I reprogram Toyota stuff. And or he's got a Facebook group or something where they reprogram all sorts of Toyota stuff, mostly one UZs, the V8 coming to Tacoma, yeah. all that stuff. Um, so I messaged him. I was like, hey, can you do a 2GR convert it to a manual? He's like, yeah, no problem. Send it to me plus 200 bucks. I'll make it happy with a manual and send it back to you. <laughs> I was like, that, that's awesome. Um, and yeah, like it's, it's kind of a black box still. Like we don't have control of the ECU. We, we can't, you know, get into it like the guys that have standalones. Um, but we send him ECU, 200 bucks. He sends it back to us and it's happy. It runs with the manual transmission. Um, I don't know. So this was three years ago or so now that since I made this first contact with him, um, we've had three or four ECUs done through him since then. I don't know what the situation of that's going to be like since the whole Ukraine invasion thing. So mm-hmm. I don't know. We've, we've got a couple other leads. We're trying to secure some alternate sources to make sure we, we can still do this going forward. Um, but yeah, that's kind of the big problem with the car and how we got around it. Uh, but before I get too far off on a tangent, just to better describe the car, it's a 2006 Lexus IS 350, roughly stock power, um, but we do open up the exhaust, run headers. The guy says his tune gives it a little bit of power, so we're somewhere, we should be somewhere between 315 and 330 or so horsepower. Um to this point, Hooper had been running IS-250 manual transmissions in the car, which are fine. They get the job done. None of them have exploded so far, but you've got to be very slow and patient with the way you shift them because the synchros don't, they, they don't like to synchronize gears very quickly. So Really? Yeah. Um, I'm surprised because a buddy of mine had a 250 that was, um, it was a standard. And I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know. I used to drive the shit out of that thing, and it had never had a problem. Actually, I think yeah. it's what my buddy learned to drive standard on too. So I'm actually kind of surprised. Yeah, no, it's. I like I said, it's fine. Like it takes it, and he was able to to beat some really fast cars driving it. But I remember the first time I drove one. I don't know if you ever seen the video. It's, it's like a viral video from the early days of the internet with the bus driver who's like shifting gears with his pinky up. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Like with his fingers. Yeah. Like the first time I drove one of his cars, like I ground a gear a couple of times and then I started doing that, like shifting slowly with my pinky up and no problem. So, yeah, I I don't know exactly. Um, So it doesn't like slam shifting. That's no fun. It does not. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So that leads us to um, my car. We had Hooper and I had kind of worked on this together for a while you know, figuring out how to get another transmission in the car. We looked at a few different options, landed on a CD009, which is... Not down a surprise the, at all. Yep, <laughs> 350Z, 370Z. Drifters love them because they hold a 1,000 horsepower. Uh, and we can get, you know, you can get them used from the seven eight $800 range. You can get new ones straight from Nissan for $2,000. Um, only problem is nobody makes an adapter kit between these two so as part of building my car we took on designing an adapter kit and yeah i've got a cd009 transmission in my lexus is 350 um 
we've run one race with it and we've had some clutch issues so it's not a finished kit yet but we're we're getting there uh that's a really smart choice and that's pretty cool that you guys now did you have to get it machined and all that i'm guessing out of like a trunk of aluminum or what was the uh would you guys go for like an adapter yeah so i'm an engineer like for my day job hooper also is um and basically yeah we i took the existing cd009 adapter kits for inspiration um and basically use the automatic Toyota bell housing behind that behind the Nissan or behind the Toyota engine and cut the Nissan bell housing off the transmission, take the front cover off. And then I've got an adapter machine that bolts to the bell housing and to the front cover of the Nissan transmission. That's so sick. Yeah. So I did the design work, um, and then we sent it through a machine shop just to have it milled out of aluminum. Wow, that is so cool. Now, aren't the 350s all-wheel drive, though? They made some in all-wheel drive. Uh, most of them are rear-wheel drive, though. Hell yeah, that is so cool. Yeah. One of the coolest things about his 250 back in the day was the rev limiter was absolutely sick. It sounded almost like a like an LFA almost. It like had this super super high RPM uh, mm -hmm. rev limiter. That was I don't know if uh, the the 3.5s had it, but the 2.5s are so cool, so cool. Yeah, yeah. They uh, I I never thought much about it because I didn't know if it was the something that the tuner guy did to it or if it, they came stock that way, but you know, I've driven other cars where they hit the limiter and just go like, wow, and then fall down and then pick back up again. This one sounds like, you know, any sort of race car you hear where you hit the limiter and it just goes like, da, 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 da. like yeah, yeah. It's sick. yeah. <laughs> that is awesome. I loved that car. It was really cool because every time he showed up someplace with it, uh, as you were saying before, like they did not really make many standards with them and mm. his was rear wheel drive standard. So every time they, like he, he showed up places, they're, like people were just geeked out about it. It was awesome. Yeah. No, they're so, good cars. Uh, total divergent topic here, but the science behind rev limiters is really fucking interesting. I've been talking with the Logans, mainly uh, Logan with the Turbo XJ, about tuning limiters in and the amount of variability in them and the effects that that has on the sound and what the engine actually does is absolutely nutty. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, so you're a revolutionary scientist now <laughs> uh possibly i'm not at the level of the prater brothers uh <laughs> because those guys have it down to like an astronomically perfect science uh, <laughs> brian for perspective they're running ls's and their rev limiter band is 25 rpms between cutting uh i think it's cutting spark and adding spark back in and it just like sounds like the engine's floating it's the <laughs> weirdest fucking thing ever um <laughs> So when you're talking about the two five rev limiters, they kind of like float. They really don't have the Cherokees have a really bad habit of like, they'll cut like 200 RPMs, 250 in my Jeep's case before they actually, you know, turn the spark back on. And it's just the two fives. He sent me videos of them. It sounds like it's bouncing 50 RPMs. Mm hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm not deep enough into it to 
completely comprehend what 25 RPMs means, but that sounds super, super low. I mean, that thing's got to be just humming right there on the limiter. Yeah. yeah, it's it's nuts. And they'll just sit there until the headers are glowing on that limiter. <laughs> it's pretty awesome. Um, sorry, so we, let's kind of slide back really quick. Now, did you actually rally the side-by-side, or was that just like a toy that you play with that kind of got you into running down super tight trails quickly? No, I never actually, I didn't actually buy the side-by-side. Um, oh, okay. So when I first decided I was going to like go the path of rally, before I bought the E30, I was like, okay, what do I want to do? I had a few different ideas. One of them was a side-by-side, um, specifically a Yamaha YXZ. Yeah, hell yeah. Yeah, so, so most of them, that fucker. <laughs> yes, so most of them are CVTs. Uh, that just doesn't do it for me. Like I, they're cool. People have fun with them. It doesn't do it for me. But the Yamaha has basically a motorcycle transmission in it, mm-hmm. which is a sequential, uh, basically the same thing we had in the shifter cart. And that got me real excited. But I sat down and put it on paper, you know, the, BMW was going to cost me this. The Yamaha was going to cost me a lot more, but I could finance it. So like, maybe that kind of works out. Um, but the thing that really like sunk the Yamaha, well, actually two things really sunk it. One from a distance, it looks like it's almost ready to go as a race car, right? Like it's got a cage. It's off-road suspension, fast motor, like it's race car, mm-hmm. but to make the cage like rally legal, you've basically got to start over. It's pretty close to it. It's you keep some of the chassis, but you've got to cut most of the cage oh, out yeah. because it's, they use some thin wall tubing. Like they're, they're and rated to like, and, oh, yeah, <laughs> like they're rated to tip over, not to hit a tree at 70. So, yeah, you know, cage seats, all that sort of stuff. Like I was going to have to buy to do the Yamaha on top of the initial investment, which killed it. Um, also at the time, the laws regarding using them on the street were not very friendly in most States. And for rally, one of the interesting things about it is the cars have to be road legal because we'll start from, you know, a place in town or the service area or whatever, and have to drive on the regular roads, just like at regular speeds, we call it transit, um, to the stage road which is the race section and then from there we'll drive another section of road and and we'll do do that three or four times before we come back to the service area again so at the time the rally organizations had just legalized you know made a rule set for the utvs but most of the states we were racing in didn't have laws that would allow the utvs to drive on the road so either UTVs weren't going to be allowed to run these races or they were going to come up with some walkie thing where you were going to have to trailer it between places and whatever. So what? yeah, what? that, that ended up killing that. And yeah. that is crazy. And mm-hmm. I'm assuming not many people were like, Oh yeah, that's fucking awesome. I'm in like, right. No, it, it's oh, really man. killed UTVs for rally for now. Anyway, um, you, you know, some- as those laws open up and as they become cheaper, we'll see what happens. But supposedly here in Massachusetts, which is like the most insane state when it comes to registering vehicles, you can actually, like I've seen a few Can-Ams and Polaris that are low, what is it? Low speed registered. 
They actually mm. are road legal. And granted, I don't know. I didn't really talk with the guys, but they did have a Massachusetts plate, which I thought was nuts. Mm-hmm. So maybe maybe they are slowly lightening up. If I mean, that would be really cool to see the uh, like a whole new class for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it would be, and kind of like what I alluded to before. I think as I think at some point there's going to be a crossover where the UTVs are advanced enough, and there's been enough of them out in the market versus the cars that are becoming more and more difficult and more and more expensive to make race cars. Like it's going to cross over at some point and you're going to see that UTV become more prolific in, in rally. And I think all, all forms of racing are going to kind of end up going the kit car direction at some point. It's just a matter Mm of when based on, you know, the different, different circumstances. Yeah, I agree with you, I, especially if they do go with that whole EPA bullshit where you can't take like a vehicle to a uh, van and then do all the off-road mod or not even like well, I mean I mean even on a track it's so because of an off-road modification. So mm-hmm. hopefully it never happens cuz that would fucking suck, but yeah. I mean I sadly it does seem like it is going that route at some point. They can't enforce yeah. that. Watch them try. <laughs> mm. You say Watch that them but try. Yeah. Eh. Well, All it's, right. just, it's just the reality of things. You can put, you can say something's a rule, but doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be enforced or that it's going to be. Yeah, followed. but like, look how quickly Harris Mountain got shut down. Similar idea in the idea. Harris Mountain like, was run by a crackhead. That's why it got it shut down. But what I'm saying is, is that track to be running will given will be given rules. Not a track, but any recreational the, area. Had, shut up! I said the wrong word, so you can't. Oh, it's, it's not a racetrack. It's, it's a. That's not I'm what I'm saying. Using it as an example. It's a totally um, different example. That's property. Property okay, so then, is big money, and there's uh, a lot more on the line than somebody's shitbox vehicle that shouldn't be on the road that is on the road. Mm-hmm. They're going to take property issues way more seriously than they're going to take a a moving violation. Just in. It's not a moving it. no, but okay, you're getting it wrong in that idea of like not the modification. Correct me then. To, Correct me. Let's hear it. What I'm trying to explain is, is it's not a debate, it's like a quick conversation <laughs> of like drag cars. A drag car cannot like so that track will be told that a vehicle with a VIN or was road legal at one point can no longer be used on that track because it had um like EVAP systems or any form of um like Oh, what's the term? Oh my god, my brain is broken. Um anyways, like so like smog stuff. So like if it has specific things done to the exhaust so that way it does not pro- like emissions, like it does not produce a shit ton of emissions, it c- it has to not be modified. So like you want to throw two uh, two turbos on your LS, guess what? You better have the same cats coming back, you better stay have the same mufflers, it better be able to pass all of that. So that track will be told if you see this, they cannot run this vehicle. It is illegal, and to stay open, they have to follow rules of that nature. Oh, and that the would track suck. Has to do that to stay Correct. open. Correct. Yes, they would be. Okay. They'd be under that. Like it wouldn't just be like, oh, they can't pass inspection anymore. Like boohoo, go cry me a river type stuff. It's like that will be the law. Still sounds dumb. Oh, it is. Don't mm-hmm. get me wrong. I think I it's. Know, I don't know. I don't know how you enforce that. I don't know how, like. I, I think it's one of those things to... where if it was going to be enforced, it's going to be one of those stupid self-policing things where XYZ amount of fine is going to scare the people that own the properties into shutting it down. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I had to guess. 
But the other thing that I would have to say is that I think that they would be very hard-pressed to pass that because, like, you know, it's one of those situations where, not to go into my little worldview, but uh, <laughs> they passed, or they made it illegal to have a pistol brace. 05 to 8%, depending on what figures you use, actually complied with the rule. It's going to have a very similar thing to that where it's very hard to police on an individual level. Yeah, I don't know. A fair point. I, mm-hmm. I don't, easy to talk about it, harder to, to do something yeah. about it. Mm-hmm. Easier yeah. to write a piece of paper and not do anything to enforce it. Because that's going to be, it has to be enforced uh, pretty viciously in order for that any that, that to actually hold any yeah. traction. Otherwise, it's just going to slide into the list of rules that we don't follow because they're dumb and somebody just put them in yeah. place to put them in place. Mm-hmm. And there are like, a lot of those. Where Brian and myself live, I really don't see that ever actually taking foot. You know? <laughs> right. Um, like, our government and the state kind of just basically said no more emissions because it's too expensive for us to keep the program going. Yeah. So... Yo, Tennessee doesn't give a shit. So I got I got a, a fun story about that. So when I sold the E30, um, I sold it to a guy in Washington because the rally community is relatively small and spread out all over the country. So he said he wanted to buy it. I knew some people who knew him. Uh, he sent me the money. I put the car on a you know semi truck and it got shipped across the country to him. Um. Came to a problem when he went to register it because Georgia doesn't really care. Tennessee doesn't give a shit. Where he lived in Seattle, Washington, they they gave a shit. So they looked at the title and realized it didn't match the VIN on the car. Uh, I had no idea because I looked at the VIN and it was a 87 325i white. I was like, yep, that's the car I got. Never bothered to check the VIN. Neither did the state of Georgia when I registered it four years ago, or Georgia two years ago, Tennessee two years before that, whatever. Um, The guy who I had bought the car from, I don't think did anything intentionally malicious, um, but he was out of the country because he took a different job out of the country at the time. And I think what happened was when that group of people had several E30s, they had bought another one at some point. And in scrapping them and building ones and whatever, like they got the titles mixed up and I got the title for a different car than what I had. Damn. Georgia. So basically my only recourse was to file for a lost title for the VIN for the car that I had now sent across the country. Georgia has a process for getting a lost title, but they want you to present the car to a police officer they run it through whatever database make sure it's not stolen then they sign off on it then you can get a a lost title it was fine except i had already sent the car across the country i went to my local police station and they were like we can't help you i was like you know can we facetime the car and you'll see it is what it is he's like no i got to be able to seize the car if it's stolen i was like I mean, oh you can't do that, God. but I'm standing right here. Like, all you can arrest me, like, whatever. 
they were like, nope, can't touch it. So after three or four weeks of trying to get a hold of the, the actual like Department of Motor Vehicles in Atlanta or whatever, um, and basically no help at all, you know, staring down, paying another twenty five hundred bucks twice to ship this thing back across the country and back again, so I could get a title, so I could actually sell the car. I realized Tennessee, if the vehicle is over, it's either fifteen or twenty five years old. I think it's twenty five. The vehicle's over twenty five years old. Fifteen. Uh, <laughs> you can submit for a replacement title with just an affidavit saying. Yep, this is this is what the car is. It's stolen. That's it. Um, yep. huh. So I, with the car already on the other side of the country, I sold this car with this title that I had never had in my hands to a friend of mine who had a Tennessee address. He registered in Tennessee. Two weeks later, a perfectly clean title shows up for this car. And I and he sells it to the guy in Washington, and yep. Washington takes it and doesn't so, ask any more questions. <laughs> I've got some funny stuff to add to this, right? So I live in Tennessee. Connecticut doesn't issue titles. I had mm-hmm. to go through the same form process that he had to do. The funniest part about this is that they make you sign that piece of paper. And then they make you pay, like, I think it's a $5 mailing fee and a $15 fine. And then your title shows up from Nashville in the mail in a normal envelope. Nothing fancy about it. Just like you get a title in the mail one day. Yeah. So, like, it's nuts. The craziest part to me, so, like, as I read through the process online, I think it said you know, a certificate of ownership or something. So I expected basically a branded title, you know, like a certificate that says like, yes, Tennessee, we acknowledge that this is your car, but like, we're not standing behind it. If it's stolen or whatever, it's just old. So we don't care. And this thing showed up. It was a brand new, like clean title with like no notes on it. Nothing. I was like, holy shit, this is ridiculous. Like it, it just, you know, if your car is 15 years old, that title doesn't, mean much anything anymore yeah so like i've been through a bunch of ignition clusters and whatnot so i just wrote three hundred thousand miles on it my title says <laughs> three hundred thousand miles and no questions were asked nothing about that just like it just showed up in my f- mailbox not even mm-hmm. like certi- or not even like a f- envelope or uh certified mail nope just like normal like <laughs> business envelope with your title in it yeah so yeah, we don't have that luxury around here. <laughs> yeah. No, but Massachusetts is is like actually pretty okay with some things depending on the state it comes from because like Connecticut's rules are fucky, Vermont's yeah, they rules don't give are fucky. You a title. Uh Maine's rules are fucky. I don't know about New Hampshire, but like because of all the states around us having really shitty rules, Massachusetts kind of has to just be okay with take it. it. Yeah, yeah, like when mm-hmm. I got that uh the J20 that uh, Jeep truck from the guy in Connecticut. I had a title that like wasn't to that guy. It was just this giant mess. He had never registered it, so it was just this. I had a random title and a and a bill of sale written on a piece of paper with the wrong guy's name on it. Right? I mean, you, <laughs> oh no! That's all I had. Is I had a title oh from like three years ago and and a bill of sale that meant nothing. So I was like, well, 
I'm just going to write a new bill of sale on a new piece of paper here with the right name on it <laughs> and bring it in. <laughs> and then they were fine with it, right? It's it's a little different, but same same concept. There's, the states that over-regulate just end up getting screwed because they have to deal with the shitty state. And mm-hmm. Granted, shitty is a um, uh, perspective here. I love it. <laughs> I don't want to deal with it. It's so much, having to right. deal with the paperwork on it all is a pain in the ass, especially if you know it's not stolen. It's just in a weird like paperwork's gone sort of situation or like the wrong paperwork was given in your case, right? Mm-hmm. So, And my case. <laughs> uh, yeah, it, it is what it is, right? Um, you can make it work if you're crafty enough and actually yeah. have some form of proof that maybe you owned it. I don't know. And in my case, it's like I've owned this vehicle for going, or at that point, three and a half years, three years. Like I own the vehicle. I know it's my vehicle, right? Yeah. Makes it a lot simpler. Mm -hmm. So now going back to the rally stuff, where do these things get held? Because like, I know some of the details, but I think the scope of like how far you guys go is kind of wild. Yeah, no, that's a good question. Um, so the series we race with is called ARA, American Rally Association. Um, basically, it's a national series. Uh, Hooper does his best to try to compete for the national championship every year. Um, and to compete in the national championship, they've got a couple of races that are classified as West Coast races out in um, Washington and oh, damn. Uh, Oregon. You've got to compete in at least one race from the West Coast and from the East Coast. So he's got to go out there and run those races every year. Um, most of the rest of them we run. Uh, so the closest ones are in Missouri and Ohio. And then, you know, there's also, there's a couple in Michigan every year. Uh, there's one in Minnesota coming up that I'm going to try to make. And there's one in Maine that's a big one every year coming up next month actually so yeah i've i've been to a lot of them either as driver or as crew for hooper it's definitely a a haul it's it's you know seemed kind of crazy at first when he told me i remember the second race i went to with him he was like there's this race in michigan it's gonna be great i was like that's like 16 hours away he's like yeah it'll be fine and i'm like that's stupid i'm not going and then i thought about it for a little bit i was like well i don't have anything better to do that weekend and i don't have to pay any money to go so yeah let's go so i went um there was a group of five of us that were on that trip that weekend great group of people that i had a good time with and we actually won that weekend and like that kind of set the hook for me i was like yo this is awesome and i can learn cool stuff and go see cool places sometimes more cool than others but um yeah so we we race all over the place it's it's uh i question it sometimes when i like drive past the racetrack that's like up the street from my house like am i doing the right thing but it's it's i love it like you know i'd go into going to a race closer and go and race more often would be cool. But like every time we go to a race and it's like this trek across the country, it's, it's an event. It's something cool just to like, just to make the race and to get there and to be competitive and stuff, you know, whether, whether we win or not. And I mean, I'm competitive enough. Like I, I want to win. I'm showing up to win. Most of us that go, you know, as river city rally are, that's kind of 
why we vibe together is because like we're all competitive and we're pretty serious about it. Um, but yeah, yeah just yeah. best case scenario, you have to be on top of River City Rally. Like you can't <laughs> let the other guys win. You got to beat them at the very yeah. minimum. So yeah, that, I mean that's something I'm I'm kind of proud of that we do, and and Hooper obviously gets a ton of the credit for this, and and Claudia who used to be his co-driver, um, like I definitely want to beat Hooper at some point, but like that's a high bar. If if I can compete on his level and beat him, honestly, like I'm I'm going to be in contention to win our class because. He is pretty much every time he goes out, and you know we're we're competing against some people that have a lot of time and a lot of money invested in these things, and it's it's a little bit of David and Goliath, but yeah, I mean it's if if I'm competitive with Hooper, like that's that's a high bar to be competing with for sure. How'd you place in the last rally that you ran in? Uh, so. The last rally I ran in was um, Southern Ohio Forest Rally, which happened last month. Um, it was my first event for the new car. Uh, hadn't done as much testing as I'd hoped we would get to do. And we blew a motor up uh, the first day of the event. So, actually the day before the event. So, we d technically weren't classified. Um, we didn't actually get to run because we missed the start we got to run the last day of the event so basically i didn't get a finishing position or whatever but r&d time i didn't expect we would you know be super competitive the first time out anyway this is a step that we need to take you know we need to go out and suck at it for a little bit get the car figured out and i'm hoping by the end of the year, I'm hoping we're reasonably close to competitive. So how was swapping the engine? Because I heard that story, but it's a funny one. Yeah, so uh, we get to Ohio, and the way, the way these events are structured, we show up basically the day before, two days before the race, and we do what's called recce, which is where we go out and drive the roads ahead of time and make all our notes for you know, the distances and the turns and the jumps and everything else. Um, so we show up in town on Wednesday, me and Matt, my co-driver go out to do recce and my friend Austin and my dad go take the car over to tech. Well, driving the car over to tech, still don't know exactly what happened, but my best guess to what happened is a fitting that I had on a heater hose popped off. The thing dumped all the coolant out before anybody realized that it was overheating. And these guys, you know, just doing their best, trying to get the car to tech, make sure we we didn't have any issues there. Kept driving the car until it popped a head gasket. So that was Wednesday night with the race starting on Thursday evening. And uh, by the time we got back to the car and had diagnosed it as the head gasket has failed, um, we didn't have any access at all to like another, you know, all the scrap guards and stuff were closed at that point. We didn't have an extra engine with us. Uh, Hooper was like, I got an extra engine that you can put in the car, but it's in Chattanooga. So you'd have to get someone to bring it. But if you can, you're welcome to it. Um, I wake up the next morning, start cold calling 
scrapyards within a hundred miles of us. Nobody has anything that they could get us that day. So at that point we had for sure missed the start of the race. Like there was just no way we were going to be able to make it. Um, but we got clarification from the officials that they would let us start the last day of the race. If we could get it, if we get the car fixed in time just to run and get some R and D miles and stuff like not that we were going to get to make it. But so once that happened, um, I was able to line up. My girlfriend, Ashley, had been at a concert in Nashville the night before and was planning on driving up to Ohio to see us run this race. Well, I got her to drive back to Chattanooga, grab my dad's truck, get over to Hooper's shop, pick up the motor, drive up to us in Ohio where we had borrowed a friend's garage, rented an engine hoist, and, you know, basically set up shop in this garage for a couple of days. Uh, pulled the motor as she was driving up. She got in Thursday evening. Friday, we dressed the new motor, which needed, it needed a few things. It had been in Hooper's car for several races before that and had a cracked oil pan and some, some other small things we had to deal with, uh, but got it all back in the car on Friday, got the car buttoned up and we're ready to go Saturday morning. Um, yeah, so it was crazy. It's not something I hope to repeat, but you know, it's it definitely felt good after having faced the possibility of driving all that way, paying all the money, having all the time and and everything sunk into it and getting like nothing to all of a sudden like we a we did this big thing. So, you know, the team has something to feel good about and B we get to run. We get to learn about the car, we get to get a step closer to being ready to go win, you know, whenever that happens. Um, yeah, that, that felt really good just to get to take the start on Saturday. I do apologize for not making it to that rally as well. I had gotten back from S'more two weeks beforehand and mm-hmm. had just started to tear into the Jeep and realized how much damage I actually done. So I spent that weekend, <laughs> like, going through bolt checking everything and just trying to start the parts list for getting the repairs done. Yeah. No worries, man. It's uh two tires. Uh two <laughs> tires. Um I had to tighten up two control arms. Um oh, that's par for the course. That's every oh, yeah. <laughs> There's a lot of little stuff like the broken axle shafts. Uh I broke the other side hub too, I found out, so that's oh cool. Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> um sounds like it at least broke locked in position. Yeah, it broke locked in position, but like it won't unlock. Um I have a cracked pitman arm because that's normal. Um oh that's not normal. <laughs> The rig does it once every two years, so like we were due. Yeah, I remember it you happened. saying this, and that just doesn't make any sense. That shouldn't be normal. <laughs> Quit cranking do, that thing on too hard. <laughs> I do apologize for not going because I really wanted to make that. It just it ended up not happening. I like dragged ass through work that following week. So nah, it's all good. Well, uh, you know, you missed a hell of a lot of work so good for you for that um (laughs) yeah we'll have we'll have other opportunities to go in the future oh i'm sure i'm excited for the missouri one so tell us a little bit about why uh why was a lot of work what happened at that event 
Oh, just swapping a motor in a day. <laughs> oh, we just yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. My brain just completely broke. I thought we were talking about something no, else. No, it's, it's all good. So, sorry, Ohio's the one I'm thinking of. Yeah, Ohio's the one we just did. Yeah. Oh, so then what's the next one? Because my brain's so broken. The, the next one's Minnesota. Um, all right, so then Minnesota's the one I'm thinking of. Yep, that should be a fun event. That's a that's a cool rally. It's forever away which kind of sucks but uh the roads up there it's in like the kind of the outer like limits of the great lakes region so like the roads are really like soft sandy stuff and kind of more open than you'd expect them to be soft sandy stuff means you can be real aggressive on you know driving deep into a corner and if you overdo it a little bit you turn the car sideways and it digs into the sand and you can you know keep going you're not sliding off the road on marbles like you are at some of the other events so i'm looking forward to it i we've run it once before which was actually my last event in the e30 we were leading our class at the time very comfortably um when the motor jumped timing and we were out jeez yeah yeah, that that was crushing um, because I had we had won one event in the E30. Actually, we won two events in the E30, but I felt like we maybe should have won more. So this was going to be like, you know, final redemption. Like, have a great race with the last, have a great last race in the car. Um, and I had also posted online already that I'm like, hey, this is going to be for sale after this event hoping that maybe somebody who's interested in rally would ever wanted to buy it and would just, you know, if they were across the country, they'd just pick it up after the event and take it back where they were going. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, you know, I realized the Murphy's law, like gamble I'm taking there. uh, And it it came back to bite me because I was like, you know, we're doing great. I'm going to get to update this ad to say it's a, you know, it's a trophy winner. Like (laughs) give me lots of money for it. But instead I was like, I'm putting a junkyard engine in it. Please, somebody <laughs> give me anything for it. <laughs> yeah. Refresh engine. Don't have to worry about it. <laughs> right. So that was that. That one hurt. But you know, it, it's always an adventure, and it was. You know, we. You could look at the times. You could see what the car's capable of, and it was. It was still good. It was a good time. That's awesome. So I'm going to steal Cody's question here. Oh, uh, I mean, I bet I didn't know the answer. <laughs> so what, what makes a rally tire a good tire and what tires do you guys run? Yeah. Rally tires are interesting. Um, so we run Hoosier rally tires. I think they're really good. They've, they've done a lot of good for us. I've heard from some other people that some of the other brands aren't up to par. Um, but that's subjective at the end of the day. Uh, oh, yeah. Mostly subjective, unless you've got the time and the data to run them back-to-back, potato-potato. Um, so, yeah, rally tires are really interesting. The best way I know to describe it is it's the carcass from a like heavy-duty truck tire with the tread pattern of a kind of like a mud tire. It's, it's somewhere in between like a mud tire and an off- like all-terrain tire. They kind of look tre- like snow tires to me. With honest. the tread compound from like a road race tire, so it gets you get them hot and they just get super sticky. Um, 
so yeah, it, it's definitely a specialized thing. Like, you know, you wouldn't want to run them on your daily driver just because they'd wear out super fast. And you drive them down the road and they hum like a mud tire, but mm-hmm. the grip they generate, you know, it's, it's freaking amazing. And then we slide them, you know, you slide sideways on like a gravel road, right? Like just the gravel roads hard on enough, but then you're hitting rocks, you're hitting sticks, we're sliding off the road. And these things just take a beating like nobody's business. They're amazing, honestly. I, I've broken wheels without breaking the tire. It's it's awesome. And I find it funny that, like, not to steal your thunder, but you guys run methods. They're really popular in the off-road world, uh, mm-hmm. like for what we do. And they're they've got a reputation for being a relatively tough rim, if not a damn tough rim. And mm-hmm. yet you guys are out there doing the same shit that we're doing just faster and more abusive as far as like probably the load or the shock load that goes into them. Mm-hmm. And it's just cool to see that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Method makes a wide range of rims and they're not all created equal, but the ones that are built tough are very tough. Really like, huh? The only way we've seen to kill them is obviously like egregious like crashes, or we also have an issue where like, you know, you're running a, a lot of wheel speed, and we're running a 15 inch wheel, which is it, so we get you know decent sidewall in the tire, but that doesn't leave a lot of clearance between your wheel and your brake caliper, and a lot of you know stuff comes up off the road. It gets in there, it runs around, and basically we run we run into an issue where over time we wear out wheels from the gravel and everything spinning around in there and just cutting down the wheel. What? Occasionally, That's you'll crazy see, to think about. yeah. So you'll see failures in rally cut through a wheel. It's not very common. What we normally see is a wheel bends eventually because we've worn it down enough. Like we've we've compromised that strength just from removing material out of the inside of the barrel. Now, are you guys running bigger brake calipers, or is it just the clearance that causes issues there? No, we're running... um, Actually, we're running stock IS350 rear brakes, and we have to downsize the front brakes to an IS250 setup to fit inside the 15-inch wheel. Um, There's just not a lot of clearance, because really nothing mostly nothing on the market these days is made to fit inside a 15 inch wheel intentionally. Um, It just happens that in this case it does. And when you do get inside a 15 inch wheel, like you kind of want to maximize that space for your brake package, because even though, you know, we're not as hard as like road race cars on are on brakes because we're not running super long stints and gravel takes a lot of that, uh, you know, you can only put so much, you only generate so much friction with the tire, so you're only going to generate so much heat with brakes. So it's not as hard as gravel stuff, but we're still pretty hard on them. So 15-inch wheel doesn't leave you much room for a big brake package. So, yeah, there's not a lot of clearance in there between the suspension and the brakes and the wheel. Um, wheel scrapers are a common thing in rally. We have not gotten around to making some for our cars yet and that should help the situation but still it's a oh like can you, you know, 
can you explain to somebody who's stupid like me when it comes to this kind of stuff a wheel scraper like yeah like, hey, you would do or like something you would mount on the car to continuously scrape the wheel there's something you would mount on the car so basically what it is is a uh uh i'm trying to think of a uh good example so you ever seen or paid attention to like a plow that goes down a road how you know it's a big steel blade with yep. like a I think they'll use like an iron piece bolted to the bottom that like drags along the road. Yep. So it's like a small version of that. You'll make a steel like blade effectively that sits on the inside of that wheel and you'll use like a plastic, like a, uh, like a tough plastic, like a UHMW, which is what we, we use for underbody protection that'll wear away and not damage the wheel, but will also take any sort of gravel that's in there and kick it out rather than having it spin around and continue to machine away at the inside of the wheel. There's still going to be a wear item because when you get into motorsports, particularly rally, like everything's a wear item. Oh yeah. That's uh, the same for us. Yeah. But it, it'll, it'll prolong the life of them. It should anyway, yeah. it should prevent you from wearing them as fast. So in rally, do you guys experience a lot of, shock breakage if you will that's something that's really common in our world we'll have like a u-joint where it just gets bound up and explodes do you guys shock have break. anything similar shock breakage like shock load or like yeah, yeah like shock yeah. loading i mean shocks too you can break shocks and uh yeah suspension falls yeah. out and boom you're shot <laughs> <in banana. laughs> yeah um far shock loading Yes and no. Definitely, actually, definitely yes. So, it's you know pretty common thing. You look at a, a track day car, right? Like the first thing a lot of people do is they go buy poly bushings and uh, things with like rod ends in them, and and all they, they get all the rubber out of the suspension out of the car, right? High end rally cars also do that, and there is a performance advantage to it, but you've got to build your shit strong and you've got to maintain it and you know we still see failures because you know you're going through creeks you're hitting rocks you're you put a lot of shock load through the car and it's not always in the direction that you intend to do it so um yeah i remember a couple of years ago um at 100 acre wood rally out in missouri actually it was the first year i drove 100 acre wood rally um, the roads we were running that year was particularly rough, and uh, we had electrical issues in my car, but Hooper was his main rival. He was a little off his pace that day. Um, I forget the reason, but he was competitive, but he was a little off the pace, and the last stage, or the last loop of stages going through this rough section, his rival, who has a much more expensive, much higher developed car than he does uh broke a control arm or something and day over hooper won that event so uh we keep because we don't have the budget to like buy all the best stuff and the best of everything we try to be kind of strategic about leaving rubber and leaving bushings and squishy stuff in certain places so that you know we give up a little bit of the precision and a little bit of the handling of that car but we also, you know, we slide off the road and hit something, the car gives a little bit and bounces back. 
and we can keep going. Um, yeah, shock loads are definitely a thing, but it's it, it's a little different than a little different than you see in road racing. Probably kind of similar to what you guys see, honestly, with rocks and kind of unpredictable angles the way you're hitting stuff. But yeah, uh, and then as far as shock breakage itself, like it's definitely hard on shocks. Uh, it depends on the type of suspension you're running. Um, like I mentioned earlier, we're not running McPherson struts in the front, which a lot of cars are. Subarus, BMWs, all that stuff are littered with them. Um, getting those to live is kind of tough, and that's where a lot of your money goes. Um, because, you know, they handle not just the up and down load, but the basically the, the side load that your upper control arm would handle in a, in a multi-link setup. Yeah. So... Yeah, there's there's money in those. Um, the good stuff is worth its weight in gold. You can rally on a lot cheaper stuff, and breakages are pretty common. Uh, us running the Bilsteins, just the coilover in the front and the back, we, knock on wood, generally don't break them. Um, they're strong. They're built to run in the desert. I know Hooper's had one failure with them that was from a aftermarket control arm that we had put on and not adequately check like the clearances at full droop and compression and i if i remember right when it got to full droop it just like touched the bottom of the shock before it actually got to that full droop and it you know doing that over and over and over again through hundreds of cycles eventually cracked the shock shaft and so but once we got that resolved that's that's not been a problem that's shown back up so one of the funniest takeaways I had from walking into the shop for the first time is these cars have little suspensions compared to what we're used to, but they're mm-hmm. like a three-inch body coil over, just sitting there chilling in this thing. Massive shocks on a little car. Super mm-hmm. cool. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's like... The car like, is, you know, depending on the car and depending on the the way it's kind of done up and the wheels you have on or whatever can look pretty pedestrian. Like I was driving my car around town and some people like didn't notice it was anything, but you get it up in the air and you see it run off road and see the droop and the way it just soaks stuff up. It's that that's where they differentiate themselves. Now, how is the civilian side of the car? Like, I know it's got obviously race car features, like no interior and all that, but Mm -hmm. running down the road, how's it feel? uh shitty um i mean it you know it drives fine it it's not like you know it's it's not trying to kill you because it's an oem drivetrain mostly um but you know there there's no heat there's no air conditioning except for the you know we put a little scoop with a vent up in the ceiling or up in the roof of it um Lexan windows, so they've got the little sliders that open up, but they don't roll down. Uh, all the sound deadening's out of it, so they're loud going down the road. You know, they kind of buzz, and uh, I mean, it you know, it drives fine, but it's not comfortable going down the road for sure. It's it's pretty no compromises, like full race car. You know, yeah, yeah. Uh, the other thing I found funny is how like your door bars are done. That thing does not look comfortable to get into. I completely understand for safety, but mm-hmm. yeah, it's not bad. Um, 
I mean, it's not, you know, if I were to drive around every day, like, that would kind of suck. It's a little annoying, but it's not like, you know, I like getting out of it quickly would not be any sort of a struggle. Like, it's, you can climb out and, and it's pretty fine. It's, it's not something I would want to try to get in and out of, you know, as an old person with a bad back or if I had, you know, a knee injury or something, like, it, it would get challenging, but just kind of normal everyday stuff it's it's pretty easy to get in and out of uh the other part that i found kind of cool was you were the person that turned me on to the fire protection systems Mm -hmm. so i thought that was interesting that you guys run them everywhere and we talked about them when we talked with radial dynamics um so i'm super excited to get that system installed i'm going to try and get that done before good evening ranch but no good no guarantees on that Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're we're mandated by the series to run a fire protection, like an onboard fire protection system. Um, it's actually only been a thing for a couple of years now. Like we've always had to carry handheld fire extinguishers, but the onboard system is is a new mandate. Um, which really is probably probably the right thing considering you know what we're doing and and the circumstances. But um, I don't my knowledge about them is not that extensive because rally tends to, even though we're, we don't follow FIA rules to the same stringentness that like series in Europe and other parts of the world do. Um, they do kind of default to FIA for, for safety stuff usually. Um, and basically the way the FIA book is written, like they kind of write the spec for the system and then you go buy it from one of a handful of manufacturers and they say, okay, you, you get a bottle of this, you know, it, it comes as a all in one kit. It's a bottle of this size. It's, you know, two nozzles for the cab, three nozzles for the engine compartment. You mount them, you know, it kind of specifies where to mount them and how the handles or, or the, you know, the, the release handles are set up. Um, and you put it in the car the way the instructions say to, and go from there yeah so what's some of the sketchier stuff and some of the better stuff you've seen rally racing (laughs) yeah i mean this do you want sketchy like dangerous sketchy or sketchy like like driving built okay yeah Yeah, sketchy stuff so generally the sketchiest stuff with rally racing is it's not, you know, it it's not a road course where somebody's thought about if a car goes off here, what angle does that wall need to be at so the driver doesn't die when they hit it? It's That's a, a mountain road through the woods, and I can think of at least two corners that, as we're making the notes, you know, we drive up to it on recce and it's just an uphill and then the trees clear away and it's a giant like cliff off the side of a mountain. And then the road turns to whichever direction. And I look at my co-driver and say, okay, this note is, Hey idiot, (laughs) triple caution. Don't screw this up. Do not kill us. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And yeah, there, there there've been a few things like that. So I think those are probably the sketchiest. Um, the other sketchy part about it is just the 
the nature of it being like competition, right? Like if you're just out there, like kind of screwing around, having fun, you know, you see the dangerous stuff, you lift off the throttle, you get through it and you go on to the next fun thing. Being like competition, you know, there, there's always that little voice in your head that's like, you know, whoever your competitor is that day is like, he, he might not lift here. You better fucking not. So, you know, that, that's the sketchiest part about it. And I've, you know, I, I watch the videos of the fast guys and try to like learn and whatever. And not that I watch it and think I can do that now, but I usually watch it and think, okay, I can, I can get there. Like I can learn, I can whatever. And with the, uh, they actually had to slow the top class of cars down the last couple of years because they had gotten so fast that they were getting to be certain level of dangerous. Um, Watching their videos and watching one of Hooper's videos from earlier this year, I actually watched it and I was like, holy shit, like, I don't know if I have that in me. Like, I hope I do, and I'm going to try, but that is, they're, they're going so fast through this stuff, and they're so committed, you know, because most of the game, most of what we're doing here is like, you know, we're making these notes so you can drive to what the road is beyond what you can see. So, you know, if you go over a hill normally and you don't know what's on the other side of the hill, you lift off because you don't know if that road's going to the right, to the left, how sharp the turn is. You know, we, we write that down in the notes. And if the note says you go over this hill wide open because the road's going to be there, you go over you it wide open if you want to win. Yeah, exactly. And, man, some of these guys are so fast and so committed to their notes and so dead on, like... It's, it is a bit scary at times because if you mess up a little bit, it can go really bad, really fast. You know, and that's kind of a cool thing from our world. We, um, we have what we call spotters. They kind of like Mm -hmm. direct you and all that. And like, if you get a good spotter, it can make a wheeling trip for you or maybe not make the wheeling trip for you, but like it's that next level of enhancement because suddenly they're making the calls about what you need to do to get your stuff up the obstacle that realistically you don't have any business being on. So Mm -hmm. I'm sure that that also carries over. Oh yeah. Exactly the same concept that you can do things that you would not be able to do without just being crazy reckless if the spotter weren't there. Like you, you just wouldn't attempt that obstacle because you can't, can't see where you're going, don't know where to go, whatever. Yeah. Same deal. And so you said that you have a normal co-driver. How does that Mm -hmm. dynamic work? Because I'm used to like, it's one of the guys that we wheel with and you know, we kind of like, have seen enough of that person's driving style to know where they're comfortable and where they need to be told, Hey shithead, your problem is Mm -hmm. that you're lifting and you need to stay the fuck in it. It's going to feel like shit, but as soon as it clears, you're good and it's going to settle down. Right. Yeah. So, uh, co-drivers and rally like very widely as far as like, you know, their relationship to the driver. Like there's, you know, at the, at the tippy top of the world, like there are professionals, there are professionals that get paid in a competitive sense. And there are a lot of people that get paid to be co-drivers for people that are coming in and have lots of money and want to learn how to do rally and stuff like that. So, 
Um, most of the field is made up of, you know, people's friends and people, whatever, who want to, who just want to do rally stuff. Um, I'm fortunate that I've had a, a consistent co-driver basically since I started. Um, so my buddy, Matt, who, uh, he's my age. He worked with Hooper in a previous job back before I knew him. Um, and he's been around doing rally stuff since before I have, uh, he also builds our cages. Um, yeah, we were, I was crewing for Hooper at the time when I decided to build my car, he was co-driving for somebody else and kind of off and on, like they weren't running super consistently. And I said, Hey, I'm, I'm going to start running. He was like, you looking for a co-driver? And I was like, yeah. Um, so, you know, there, there's been some other people I could have called on that maybe would not have been as consistent, like would not have been committed, like as a team, just, you know, kind of show up event to event as they're available. Um, but yeah, Matt and I have a, a really good dynamic. It's really advantageous that we're able to work with each other kind of consistently. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, you know, he, he's a good dude to have in the car because he's got some more experience with some some people that have way more experience than I do. And so, you know, as I got started and, and I, as as I was, I, I came in with the, like, car control and, like, know how to drive a car fast skill set. I definitely had to learn the how to listen to notes and and kind of manage how to drive fast while you're listening and driving and doing all that at the same time skill set so he's been great for that um and yeah we've we've got a good you know good uh good feel i think for each other and 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 what's going on like you know it's if i'm getting frustrated or i'm pushing a little too hard or whatever like he he knows and he says something um, at the same time, if I hear him like get a little, if his cadence changes a little bit, I know like he's not as sure about what's coming up or what he just said or whatever. And it that you know, it's just a relationship that you build with somebody. And the more you can do that, it it's helpful in the car because you pick up on the little things that aren't necessarily super obvious. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, I definitely say a co-driver is way more important than a uh, just a spotter with wheeling. You know, like I feel like you literally are just paying attention to not dying while driving rally. That having mm-hmm. that like person in the back of your head going, "Hey, turn left two o'clock. You got this," and you just like <laughs> let off, tap the front brakes. You know, fr- like load up the front tires and just fucking hammer through the corner. And then he's telling you like, you know, over this next crest, you got like a right hand corner. Like, and you're just trying to rip. That's that sounds so sick. I would love to try it. Yeah, it like so much it- fun. It's definitely when I say it's it's the same concept as you guys as spotter, like it's it's the same in a certain way, but it's also like a order of magnitude like higher, higher. consequence because the things are coming faster. Yeah. You know what and, I'm saying? You, I mean the difference between what you guys are doing with the the notes and I, I'm I'm assuming the co driver is reading you the notes and, and whatnot and sort of giving you advice as to what you're doing mm-hmm. whereas a you know a spotter is very much uh you know it, it's just a much slower game with 
with off-roading or wheeling. Um, it's just and not you don't fair. necessarily have to listen. Like, and this sort of comes into, uh, I guess this would be a similarity is if you know the person who's spotting you and you know how they drive and can kind of get in the other person's head as far as uh, like what they, even though you can't see it, you know that they're seeing something and they're giving you logical advice, then uh, you can make the right decision based on that. Cause it's all just input. You don't have to listen to it. Right. Um, yeah. And that can make or break whether you're going to make something. If you've got a shit spotter and he's telling you to do the wrong thing, that can be the difference between you blowing a, you know, a 35 spline stub shaft. Uh, thanks, John from Trail Trash. Uh, <laughs> or uh, it can be, you know, you make the obstacle that you have no business on, right? Like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think, um, I mean, there are only a couple people who I will listen to almost unconditionally. Uh, and the rest of the people I will, uh, I'll, I'll listen to, but at the same time, if I, if I am not confident in their line choices, just based on shit I've seen them do or seen them spot other people into and based on, you know, the stuff that I've seen, the other big thing with off-roading is, I mean, if you're watching a rig go up something, if you're experienced enough, you can sort of take the, you know, how it handled that rig and even though it might be slightly different than yours, you can translate it into what you're to your rig and what you're doing and say, okay, mine's gonna do this, so I need to be there with this tire, you know, have my have myself angled in this way to actually make that. Um mm-hmm. and then you end up, you know, in some cases not even needing a spotter entirely, but um you know, it, it's it's a different dynamic but similar concept with the whole trust mm. the whether you trust the person and then knowing uh you know just just building that relationship i think is the biggest thing yeah right i agree yeah. completely yeah absolutely and then kind of the difference being is like you know things are happening fast enough for us that like we don't have time to talk it out it's kind of yep. a, they spit yep. it out and you make a decision mm. immediately whether you trust it or not right yep <laughs> um and yeah that's so the the way we actually communicate with each other in the car is since we don't have time to like talk things out or whatever you know describe the next corner mm-hmm. we basically describe each corner with a number system like there's different ways people do it but we use one through six six being keep your foot down don't mm-hmm. lift one being the tightest corner you can imagine um and then we We've got some other notes in there like crests or cautions or slippy or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's like a shorthand communication that he's just rattling off. Basically, as I'm coming out of one corner, he's rattling off what the next corner is going to be. And I'm setting the car up and putting it where it needs to be. And as I set it into that corner, he's rattling off the next one. And we're it's, it flows like that. And you're, when, it, the, when it's right... Good. Sorry. No, you're good. And are the numbers sort of that's gonna be a pain in the ass when you're making notes, right? Do you go through a course and you say, Oh, that's a sharp turn, that's a one, but then you see another one that's sharper. Do you have to like reallocate your your numbers depending on like do you go through a whole course, make notes, and then give him numbers, or are you giving him numbers as you're going through the first time? Uh I'm giving him numbers as we go through. So ideally, you know, at the top levels of the sport 
the drivers, they've got the notes kind of set up based on what gear the car needs to be in. Mm -hmm. And they do recce in the same vehicle every time. So they know, you know, either just through their own intuition with the angle of the corner, or a lot of people kind of use the cheat code, the angle of the steering wheel in your recce car, like as you're just driving down the road, will give you an idea of what number that corner needs to be. Um, I'm learning, you know, what numbers apply to this car (laughs) since I just got a new car. That's another challenge of it. Like, I'll have notes when we go to Ojibwe from last time, you know, what the numbers were. And I knew, you know, if, if he called a three in the, in the E30, if it was a three minus, I was in top of second gear. If it was a three plus, I'm kind of middle of third. Mm-hmm. If it was a three, I'm, it could kind of depend based on the conditions or whatever. If we go back and call the same three for this Lexus, I don't know what speed it needs to be. I'm still figuring that out. So. That's one challenge. Another is, you know, usually we're doing recce in my truck that we use to tow the thing to the track, which, or tow the thing to the race, which obviously is a completely totally. different size vehicle going down the road. Yep. Um, it's consistent, though, which is helpful. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people, you know, depending on their circumstances, either whether they're flying into the races or like Hooper's towing a big trailer with three cars on it now, get a rental wow. car to do recce. Um, you know, you're getting a different rental car every time. So how does that steering angle go to the note? So it's definitely more of an art than a science. Um, yeah. But it's, you know, kind of basing it on the speed, the car is going to go through the corner. Like, you know, like this hairpin, a hairpin, like super tight, like junction corner is going to be a one. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter if there aren't any on that event. Like that's still a one. A six is a thing I can take flat out. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter if there aren't any on this event. So it, I guess what I'm saying is it doesn't vary event to event because you kind of gotcha. base it on the speed of the car, you know, no matter where you're going. Gotcha. So it's not a course thing. It's a car thing. Exactly. Okay. Oh, that's pretty cool. That makes actually, makes it, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Now, is it based on the gear, right? Six would be, or is it just arbitrary? Because I know um, you, you, you kind of, you mentioned being in what gear at, you know, at what number, so. Yeah, ideally, you know, if you, you could design it and set it up so that a, your number matches your gear. And honestly, that might be kind of where it, the the one through six idea comes from um one through six for me it it's a it's a bit of a traditional thing because i played dirt rally which is like a simulator on the computer and they based everything off one through six um also there's a a system basically a system of like automated notes which are guidelines like they're they're going to get you down the road like safely, but not necessarily the fastest that most of the events used to all use. Now they still give them out some, which are good for like kind of really new teams to, to get them started without having to write their own notes from scratch. They're also based on a one through six. So I had this kind of background of one through six. Um, gotcha. So that's just the standards sort of. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and then one through six really works to to match your gear numbers. 
if you've got a high-end rally car with a you know sequential transmission and all that stuff where all your gears are set up you're going to use all six of them on stage um us with the cd009 obviously we have six gears but six is overdrive like we're never going to see that on stage First gear, yeah, I'm I basically only. I was like, damn, the six must be really fast. <laughs> like, yeah, they're <laughs> fucking moving. <laughs> yeah, no, we'll we'll get the fifth on stage, but we won't we won't see six because overdrive. So you're not yeah. you're not doing anything there anyway. Um, so, also, we won't see first unless you're like actually stopped for some reason. <laughs> so yeah, really it, tight hairpin. <laughs> yeah, narrow, narrow. Uh, I don't know. You could probably make that work. Drift that shit. Yeah. That, yeah try to get it that for the oh shit moments like ah, I'm <laughs> off the road or I'm backwards or whatever like let's get it in first and get it going again <laughs> that's awesome yeah um, so a couple quick questions how long is the stage because I don't think we covered that yeah so it varies um, there's not really there, there's not a standard um but it can be anywhere from two and some two, you know, two point something miles to. I think a. You'll see several twelve to fifteen mile stages through the year. See a handful of twelve, fifteen mile stages through the year. Anything longer than that's pretty unusual. Um, and then you know anything in between. It's it just depends. Um, the way these events are made up. So a full like top level like national events uh will usually be about a hundred competition miles in that hundred competition miles that'll be divided up you know depending on the length of the stages um somewhere between 12 and 22 or so stages um most of the time the events will run in so it'll be spread out over two days. You'll do two loops either day, which me a loop being, say I run stages one, two, three, four, and then I come back to service. Stages uh, five, six, seven, and eight will just be repeating stages one through four again. So yeah, a hundred competition miles or so, basically fifty unique miles run twice. Damn. So yeah, you're not, you know. It's not like circuit racing, you know, around a track where I've got everything memorized and I know where my breaking points are and I know the course like intimately. Mm-hmm. Like it's spread out enough. Like you know, you're making your detailed notes as best you can and you're committing to them. Like you're driving to them as best you can, but you're not getting multiple looks at this. You're not getting to really dial in what each corner means and and really optimize it. You're having to kind of improvise your way through it and be ready for what whatever circumstances come like i know last last time i ran ojibwe which was two years ago that's the race up in minnesota we did recce on a day that it wasn't raining and hadn't been raining for several days and the days we were racing it was shit storming on us and everything was swampy and nasty Mm -hmm. um Fortunately, we had paid attention to the weather, and I knew that, so I paid attention to the elevation changes and the, the lines in the road and stuff and, and was able to call out things I thought were going to be slippy. Um, but yeah, like you don't, 
you know, you're, you're covering all these miles over all this area over several days. Like you don't know a hundred percent what those circumstances are going to be as you're coming up to them each time. That sounds pretty crazy. Now, so something that we used to do on the street bikes when we were running down the road and on a road we didn't really know that well was we would like I would look up at the the trees. Have you ever noticed mm-hmm. that you could do something similar when you're coming like, you know, trying to do a wreck or even when you forget a corner where if you look up and you see that the trees well, actually, I mean, you can do it either the trees or the lines in the road. Like if you see them mm-hmm. start to narrow to a point that like it's touching, then you know it's going to be a tight ass corner or similar with the trees. Like if that spacing up top above you is closing then you're like, oh, shit, it is really like it's really a one. Is that something that you have looked into or is that not really worth it? Yeah. So that's something I, definitely if you get in a situation where you're like off the notes for some reason, it, it's useful um, and it's something that was and is a lot more prevalent um in some different rallies that they don't do as much these days but they used to do a couple of different variants of rally one where um basically there was no recce and they'd give you this set of notes that i mentioned before they call them jimba notes and i I don't remember exactly what jimba means but basically it's notes like we would make you know to go racing but somebody you know somebody drives down the road with this like computer system in the car and it determines the severity of each corner so doing that without doing your own notes like you do pay more attention to the tree line and stuff i don't particularly like that sort of racing because it's it's a weird middle ground where like it's giving you the corner severity and all this stuff where you should be able to go really fast but like you don't know because you didn't make the notes and all that stuff um there's another third type of rally, which they call tulip notes, which Mm -hmm. I do kind of like, but I don't think there are many of them left. Um, And basically what that is, is it'll have, you know, at this junction, turn right and then go eight miles on this road. And when it comes to a T turn left. Oh, so it's like Dakar rally. Exactly. But between that eight miles, like it's not giving you every turn. So you just have to drive what you see. Looking up at the tree line like that, absolutely. And that sort of rally is beneficial. Like you're trying to kind of see as far down the road as you can. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, that's definitely, you know, we're not running the same speeds when you do those sort of rallies. But it's a a different challenge. I think still a fun one too, because you're, I mean, it's all a game of chicken, but that's a different game of chicken, right? Because you're, you're, you don't have any inclination that you know what's over that hill. It's just going over the hill, being as prepared as you can for whatever's on the other side. That's so cool. Now, uh, so we are kind of coming up on two hours already. Holy shit. I didn't even realize that. Um, yeah, it's flying by. God damn. Now, so generally we do wrap up really like around two hours, so we'll start slowing down here. Now, I do have another question for you. If the so currently you are running the Lexus, right? I didn't miss that you switched cars. Yeah, currently I'm running the Lexus. What is your next car? What are you thinking? Or if and if it's a different car in a totally different class, what class would you be aiming to go for? No, so the Lexus is really as far as I've thought to this point. Um, one just because we just got done building it, so. It, this is I'm not really looking for something else yet. Um, it is 
So the way the classing is broken down, like there is an open four-wheel drive class, which is like the top class. Um, that's where you see, you know, your factory Subaru team and uh, Travis Pastrana and people like that racing. If you want to compete there, you need a whole lot of money. What I like about this open two-wheel drive class is because you're limited to two driven wheels on a loose surface, there's diminishing returns to spending a whole lot of money. So it's kind of, it's, it's kind of the peak. Like I'm, there's not really another class I'm looking to go to beyond it, you know, right now. Like, I mean, you know, if I had the opportunity at some point to do some sort of like actually like paid gig, I'd go wherever they want me to go. I don't, I, I'd drive whatever, but Absent of that happening, which I don't see happening since I'm 30 years old and have a day job and not, you know, I'm not a professional driver. Um, yeah, it it's where it's at for now. Um, you know, just thinking toward the future, I don't I don't know what the next car is. Like, it, like I mentioned before with the side by side thing, it is like I've thought about, you know, as these Lexuses become scarce or whatever the reason, whatever the next thing is, like. I don't know. I've hemmed and hawed over stuff. Uh, if the day ever comes that they're not catastrophically expensive, I'd love to have a Porsche 911 rally car. But yeah, I don't know. The Lexus is, it, it's all oh, just kind of pipe dreams and whatever for now. It's the Lexus is, is where it's at for now. Hell Makes yeah. Sense. I was, uh, I was going to make fun of you, Cody. I was going to say that's like if you were to buy, Nick Jonard's chassis, and then me two days later be like, "What's your next rig?" Because <laughs> he's, run, he's, one, he's yeah. run one race in the thing. <laughs> he mentioned that he was like, "Oh, I'm just gonna sell it or whatever." In that one, so I didn't know what his like. Maybe he was like, "Damn, this thing kind of fucking sucks." We already blew I'm up the motor. Ask, whatever, whatever, whatever rig you end up getting or building, I'm gonna make sure I ask you two days after it's done <laughs> or after the first run. Now, if I post is, it, and you're gonna say the same thing. Go, oh, hey, somebody know. come pick this trash up for me. Like he said, he did. <laughs> All right, Mister. He said that for the E30. Pay attention. Oh my gosh! You have to listen to the episode. Realize how uh, <laughs> how out of this, how out of it you are. Sorry, my <laughs> you're good. So, do you have any questions for us, Brian? Uh, no, I don't think so. Um, it was interesting hearing you guys, you know, bringing up the the UTV possibility. Um, yeah, no, I don't know. I don't. I don't think I have any questions. All right. Well, then, uh, in that case, anyone else got anything, or should I take it away? Take it I'm away, not, Luke. I'm not allowed to say. Graham will yell at me. Yeah, I will. Okay. <laughs> you got it, then. All right. So, in my reading, I have discovered that the internal temperature on that Titan sub that went up... <laughs> for, uh, <laughs> Oh God damn it, God. you killed it. Can all your turns be sixes? And uh, I don't know. Somebody pick another uh, outro. I liked his outro. How about you shut the fuck up and let him <laughs> say it then, mister? Luke, hit it again, dog. Hit it okay. again. So the internal temperature during the implosion on the Titan sub is said to have hit 5,000 plus degrees due to the immense amount of pressure coming up. But that's still not as hot as Brian going into some of the turns at River City. <laughs> that's there pretty hot. Go. 